podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is talking about two of the world's biggest cheating scandals that have happened of recent times, the Houston Astros and the Australian cricket team. And while I kind of know a little bit about one of them, the other one's not so known to me. So here's an expert I found to have a chat. I'm Ben Ryder. I'm a longtime writer at Sports Illustrated and the host and producer of the podcast, The Edge. In this episode, we talk about the many similarities of the two scandals, the reactions, the hatred for the teams, how so few people were actually punished, what happens when standard cheating crosses the imaginary line to moral outrage, how funny both of them were, and we compare Faf Duplessis to the Boston Red Sox. There are links in the show notes to Ben's book and podcast if you're interested. Really big fan of your podcast. I read the original book. It's almost like you wrote one book saying how great the Astros were, and then you made a podcast saying how evil the Astros were. I love the journey <laughs> that you've been on. I suppose if we, for those who don't know, you did an incredible thing and in that you went into what was one of the worst organizations in American professional sports as far as losing games was going, the Houston Astros, the baseball team. And you wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated where your editors completely strung you up by then giving a title, which is, was it you predicted that they would win the title by 2017 or 2016, was it? Or something alarming like that, which must have absolutely given you a lot of stress. And of course, the Houston Astros <laughs> then do win the title. I think, was it a year before you said or the same year? So the initial piece I wrote, Jared, was in 2014. And the cover predicted that what was then essentially the worst team in baseball would win the World Series in 2017. So three and a half years later. And incredibly enough, that's what happened. And so from that, you then wrote the book Astro Ball, which for people like me who like to read about the cutting edge of sports became like a, a, an incredibly popular book of that period. Like there was Astro Ball and MVP Machine and some of the really good basketball books came out around that time as well. Of course, then in 2019, everything goes, well, let's use a, a fun phrase, tits up, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. <laughs> but uh, if we could just go back to the beginning a little bit, I know there's a few people who follow this podcast who like baseball, but most people won't know much about it. The Houston Astros were shit for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, they were the worst team in baseball in half a century, <laughs> at least if you count, you know, a three-year period. Essentially, for three years, they lost more games over a three-year period than any team had since the 1960s. So this just wasn't one bad year. This was like systemic awfulness, which was one of the things that attracted me to the story. You know, I wanted to go in and kind of understand how a baseball team that had had some success in the past, they'd never won a championship in over half a century of existence, how they'd gotten so bad and what their plan was to get better, because I figured they had one. And this led to kind of the unusual opportunity, especially over here, to embed with the team in 2014 in the front office to sit in on their meetings to hear what this plan was. And obviously, I came away impressed. I came away thinking that not only were they onto something, but that it was going to work and that it could work a lot faster than people thought. The interesting thing is, obviously, you were right, and a lot of the decisions they made went very well for them and, and the way that they were pushing everything. But then, because they got successful so fast, there was also, they weren't very popular, I suppose is the best way to put it. General baseball fans really didn't like the Houston Astros when they got good, did they? I think that there was some fondness for the players, 
even outside of Houston, because it was a likable group. You know, Jose Altuve, kind of their leader, the shortest guy in baseball. He stands five foot five. They're kind of underdogs in a certain way as far as the players. What there was a lot of pushback against Jared was the strategies that the front office pursued to turn this team around, led by the general manager, Jeff Luno, who came from outside of baseball. He came from the consulting world. He had worked for the St. Louis Cardinals for a while, but he was unabashed about the fact that he was an agent of change. He was going to turn the sport upside down. He had no time for sentimentality, for baseball orthodoxy. He was there to do things different. And if you didn't like it, get out of here. That certainly pissed off a lot of people around the league and he didn't really care, right? And obviously, he didn't care that much about showing the world what he was doing to some degree because he let someone like me come in and report about it. Did he let you in because he needed to justify what was happening? Was the press that bad at that point around Houston? Or was he trying to show off a little bit, do you think? A little bit of both. I think that they were getting killed because they were still bad when I went in. You know, this turnaround, which he had instituted a couple of years before, hadn't been working yet. Everybody thought they were a bunch of clowns. They were disgracing the game, that they were losing on purpose, which they were in part to get high draft picks. And he felt, I think, partially at the time, that if you let someone like me come in and just showed me what they were up to, that that would maybe turn the narrative around a little bit, show the world that, hey, we do have an idea what we're doing, and this is what it looks like. So at this stage, they start to win. They then win the 2017 World Series, and everything's great for a little while. Explain what happens then when that all starts crumbling down. <laughs> well, it was really November of 2019 when a former pitcher for the Astros named Mike Fires revealed in the publication The Athletic that his team during the 2017 championship season had been stealing signs. Now, for people who don't follow baseball closely, the signs are essentially finger patterns that a catcher behind the plate puts down to tell the pitcher on the mound what pitch to throw? Fastball, as hard as you can. A curveball has some break to it. I'm sure there's a lot of cricket corollaries to these pitches. So like, say, one finger means pitcher throw a fastball. Two fingers means pitcher throw a curveball. This is a secret communication between the catcher and the pitcher. It's supposed to be secret. Unless you have a team that has a video camera set up in center field, streaming to a video screen behind the dugout where players are sitting deciphering these signs, and then transmitting what pitch is coming to the hitter at the plate through the very technologically advanced method of banging on a trash can. This is how they would alert hitters at the plate on their own team as to what pitch was coming. And it turned out that for much of the 2017 season, so this was two years before it was revealed, this is what the Astros were doing. So immediately... This world championship that had seemed so unvarnished that it seemed almost like a fairy tale story of this horrible team finally gets it together was certainly not unvarnished or untarnished anymore. And sign stealing is not illegal if you've got a runner doing it. It's illegal when you are using technology. Is that right? Is that how the Major League Baseball rulings are? That's the letter of the law. But these kind of gray areas is something I spend a lot of time in my podcast investigating. Because sign stealing is like an age-old, beloved tradition in baseball, right? Like teams, obviously, when you have any secret language, there's going to be an opponent trying to crack it. Teams have been doing this going back to 
I think it's 1875 was the first recorded like mini sign stealing scandal where one team had like a telegraph box attached to a pole next to the field and they had someone with binoculars up in there stealing the other team's sign. This is how far back it goes. And it's been this kind of almost like valued tradition that you always want to have a really good sign stealer on your team throughout the course of baseball history. Of course, the tools by which you can do this change. Jared, and they get a lot better, especially once the video revolution comes in. And the league, the powers that be, made some small steps to start to regulate this stuff, but it wasn't nearly enough. And they knew it wasn't enough. And for a team like the Astros, it was just too tempting, ultimately, to push this tradition farther and farther and to weaponize it and take it to a place that maybe nobody could have imagined. So they are caught cheating. They've already got their world title. The world title is not taken off them, so they keep the rings. And the coach and the general manager are suspended. If I'm not mistaken, the only player who is suspended over this is an opposition pitcher who finds out about this in the next preseason and throws at someone's head. No actual Houston Astros player was ever suspended. Am I right? The players were not punished at all. Technically, this was because when the league and the commissioner, Rob Manfred, was investigating this, they promised the players immunity in exchange for their testimony. It was almost like a deal. And then, as they investigated this, they found out in their own words that it was a player-driven scheme. That in fact, like, yes, the Astros front office was wanting to change things. They were willing to exploit every edge that they possibly could. And I make an argument on my podcast that this culture certainly trickled down to the clubhouse and is one explanation why this happened in Houston. But the top level of the front office, by all accounts, was not the people who are actually doing this. It was the players executing the scheme in association with some lower level staffers and coaches. But you're right. The players themselves, not one of them served a single game suspension. Not one of them paid a single dollar fine. And ever since this scandal broke has led to a whole lot of hard feelings among not just opposing fans, but opposing players as well. The feeling that the actual lead perpetrators of this were not punished. Now, the reason I've got you on this podcast, although this story is great and people should uh, read Astro Ball and go and listen to your podcast, The Edge, which is the, I suppose, the sequel. In this case, the sequel is almost even better than the original because it gets more dramatic. But <laughs> the reason I got you on is because of at the exact same time that this was all happening, Australian cricket was caught cheating on the field against South Africa. And obviously, I know you're not an expert on that, but you've looked it up because you don't want me to ask you any questions you don't know anything about. <laughs> but what I just found so fascinating about this, and I have the whole time, is the similarities between the two. So if we just go back to the start, one team was caught because a fan literally went through all the footage to link bangs on a trash can to the actual pitchers themselves. And when I say a fan, it was literally a Houston Astros fan. You interview him in your podcast, which is absolutely incredible. And the Australian cricket one is someone taking out sandpaper on the field and then getting caught putting it in his own underwear in order to try and hide the evidence from the umpires, <laughs> which again, it's just, I mean, who wants to put sandpaper down their underwear? So my first question is, how much do you think of these sorts of things? A lot of teams get caught cheating in these sorts of situations, but in some ways, the sort of ridiculous nature of these two particular things stands out a little bit over normal cheating. Like, we live in such a meme social media culture. And I remember when this story broke, and, you know, I follow a lot of American sports writers, 
And the trash can thing was just such an incredible meme to go about. And exactly the same thing happened with the sandpaper. How much do you think the fact that it is just very, very funny played into the fact that it spread so much around the world? I think the simplicity and almost like the visceral nature of it does play into it, right? It's like almost funny, or it actually is funny. That, you know, somebody like me wrote a book about how technologically advanced <laughs> the Astros were, how their technology was going to upend baseball and set baseball on a new course, which it actually did. And there was a lot of validity to what they're doing, and it worked in large measure. We could talk about that later. But the fact that the way that they were capturing this ultimate edge was by the very technologically advanced method of banging on a trash can. I mean, I just think the humor of that led to its catching on. There's also something unusual about this story, and that you mentioned the fan, Tony Adams is his name, who cataloged pitch by pitch all of the instances in which his own team, the team that he'd loved his whole life, did this. And he did kind of get a lot of the truth out there. But it was the very unusual fact that the person who spoke to The Athletic and broke the story used to be a member of the Astros, right? Like in baseball, that is extremely rare, as it is in a lot of these organizations that are very closed-lipped, you know, almost like military or mm. mafia, some would say, like cultures in which you don't talk out of school, you don't talk out of the clubhouse. Like it was extremely rare for this guy, Mike Fires, to come out and speak against his former team. And I don't have a problem with it. A lot of people did, including a lot of baseball players. As a journalist, I'm thrilled that he did this because I believe in truth and sunlight and all those good things. But one of the reasons, I think, that he did this was because the Astros' culture was so analytics-focused and so not interested in sentimentality. He was a guy who was on the team. The general manager made a decision not to put him on the World Series roster and then kind of unceremoniously cut him right? Like treated him in some ways, some would say, like a number. And then when his numbers stopped being useful, they tossed him away. But these are humans playing the game. So I think the fact that he didn't have very warm and fuzzy feelings about this team that he'd pitched for contributed to this mess as well. So that was really one of the most unusual things about this whole story, that it was revealed in this way by someone from the inside. And that sort of plays into my next question as well, because you briefly talked about that. They became hated because there was a real algorithmic feel to the way that they ran their baseball club. And obviously there's a lot of advantages to that. I mean, I've been a general manager, uh, you know, cricket team, and I understand how that works. But I also understand that the kind of the other thing, which is you do have a human being and it's generally easier to work with a human being than it is to just replace them with another set of numbers and hope that everything's going to be fixed. But Moneyball comes out in what, 2001, 2000? And... 2003 was when the yeah, book came out. Yeah, 2003. And then the film comes afterwards. And then baseball then becomes a very, very data-led sport, doesn't it? I mm -hmm. mean, you see the way that the field looks different now, the walks, all these things have happened. Now you've just got people either being struck out or hitting home runs, almost nothing in the middle. That's right. There seemed to be a big kickback against the technology in baseball at that time. Were the Houston Astros sort of the golden child of that, and that's why they were so hated by the fans? That was part of it. Moneyball's influence on the game can hardly be understated, right? Like, it led directly in some ways to Jeff Luno's job, his first job in baseball. Jeff Luno was a tech executive in Silicon Valley. He was a consultant, right? Like he liked baseball, but when the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals read Moneyball in 2003, he said, I need a guy like that, right? Like I need a guy to come in and change our processes in this way. 
And he hired Jeff Luno, not at the top position at the time, but as an executive on the team. And many other teams followed suit. And then what happened was an almost arms race between teams to see how far can we push analytics? You know, how much can we make systemic in our organization? More and more and more and more. And when Jeff Luno got to the Astros in 2011, he was at the forefront, right? And the numbers were what mattered to him. Winning was what mattered. That's what mattered to the owner of the team, Jim Crane, as well. That's why he hired Jeff Luno. So it was almost like, how far can we push this in every single sense? This was no longer, as it was for the Oakland A's, like a tool almost to assist in decision-making. Like, this was how they were making the decisions. And yes, a lot of Astro Ball was about combining human expertise, right, and human observation with hard numbers to get the best out of both man and machine to optimize your decision-making process with every single decision you make, hundreds a day, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of them a year that hopefully will end up leading to a championship. But yeah, I mean, even back then, some people were wondering, well, are we losing stuff? You know, what are we losing as far as the human touch? People were pushing back against this for years. And I think to Jeff Luno and the Astros, it was like, look, we're here to win. We're here to make money. We're here to win championships. That's what matters here. But I think, especially once the scandal broke, it was revealed that there was a dark side to this way of operating that could play out in all sorts of different ways, including very unexpected ones involving trash cans. I mean, that's one of the things I find so interesting is that sort of build up because Cricket Australia in no way are advanced analytically and never have been, and they're still (laughs) a little bit behind other countries like India and England, but they have been the most dominant team. They've been the Yankees of cricket. They started the rivalry by beating England when England invented the sport, and all the way through they've been the best team other than a couple of small periods where some other teams have dominated. And for a long time they were kind of popular, but the thing is, especially through the 90s when they got so good, they became very arrogant. I'm allowed to say all this because I'm Australian. (laughs) We became very arrogant and we thought our way was the only way to play cricket. And there was a lot of, I think, as people started to learn about world cricket, you know, cable TV came in and the internet came in and you could watch other teams. You're just like, well, these other teams can be good without being arseholes. So (laughs) there was a big part of what happened with the Sandpaper Gate stuff in cricket that was just like, amplified because of just how much everyone hated Australia by that point and how Mm -hmm. much I was sick of Australia. So was that a similar thing, do you think, for the Astros? Yeah. I think a lot of people, especially by 2019, thought the Astros were arrogant, thought they were know-it-alls, thought they maybe didn't treat people well. And most annoyingly of all, as with Australia, it worked, right? Like (laughs) what they were doing worked. They went from at the beginning of the decade, the laughing stock of not just baseball, but of all of American sport, to at the end of the decade, like the dominant force in baseball. Like they won in 2017, they went deep into the playoffs in 2018. 2019, they made the World Series again and kind of like lost this shocking game seven against the Washington Nationals. But in baseball, like we haven't had back-to-back champions for decades, right? Mm. Since the Yankees at the turn of the millennium. So the fact that this team was consistently so good and even won, and that they did it the way they did it, made them a lot of enemies and really drew a target on their backs. So that certainly exacerbated the reaction when news of this scandal broke, because a lot of people, including, as I argue in the podcast, some people in the Major League Baseball office wanted to take them down. Yeah, I find all that really interesting. The other thing is, you mentioned earlier that the first sign-stealing scandal was back in the 1800s. 
And ball tampering is probably even older than that. I would say ball tampering probably goes back to the 1700s from the moment that they realized that the seam on on a cricket ball is far more pronounced than it is obviously on Mm -hmm. a baseball and does more damage. Fun fact, my father was a bowler and he's got all these Mm. bowling trophies around with cricket balls. And one of the cricket balls, he has clearly hacked it to death with his thumbnail. (laughs) Unless a lawnmower went over it, there's no way that ball would have done that. What changed really was the reverse swing came in, which is a, a different kind of ball tampering than they had had before. And originally that sort of centered around Pakistan and parts of Australia as well. But certainly Pakistan made it popular, which meant that there was a racial tone to when they were accused of it, Mm. which made it a very hard thing to talk about. But the point is that in both of these situations, tampering with the ball, which is obviously also going on with baseball, that's a whole, I'll get you on for that episode another time, but (laughs) tampering with the ball in cricket has been going on for a long time and sign stealing has been going on for a long time. What specifically do you think sort of flipped out the media and the talkback radio and the fans? Because those are the three areas that really got upset about this because Let's be honest, you've covered baseball for a long time. I've covered cricket for a long time. We both know that teams are generally cheating a lot when it comes to these particular things. Right. I get a lot into the in my podcast about the blurred line between gamesmanship and cheating, right? And also the difference between almost like cultural norms and rules, right? Like these two things are connected. And there is this accepted, almost like as I'm sure there is in cricket, right? There's like an accepted level of cheating, in all of these sports. There's an acceptable level of cheating in baseball about all sorts of things. What was clear about what the Astros did is more than break a rule, although they did, although it was a rule that nobody had ever in the history of baseball been punished for breaking, which begs the question, like, is that really a rule if there's never been a punishment for breaking it, the rule about sign stealing? But what was clear is that they broke a norm within the game, right? And you could tell that largely by the outrage that opposing players had when this was revealed. You know, this wasn't like everybody's doing it to this level. Like, yes, every team is stealing science to some level. Undoubtedly, we know this. Other teams had been using technology to steal science on some level. No one had taken it to this level, as far as we know, as far as using technology to such a degree, and crucially, as far as simultaneously or kind of immediately telling the batter at the plate what pitch was coming. You know, teams had used technology to try to crack teams' regular sign patterns, the kind of thing like, oh, if you see them do this in the future, you might know what's coming. Some teams even periodically did this simultaneously. No team had done it so systematically and simultaneously as the Astros did. And it became clear, perhaps after the fact, that this was the line that they had crossed. They'd not only broken a rule, they'd crossed a normative line within baseball culture Plus, people didn't like them. That combination really blew this thing up. Because I think the cricket one is so similar in that teams had been ball tampering for so long, but just the simple act with the Australian players of taking the sandpaper out, it just took it to another level. So in cricket, you'll like this one, in cricket, a players (laughs) use stuff that mountain climbers use to strengthen their nails so that they can scratch the ball better. So literally, players are doing everything they can to be able to do that. They use special kind of mints. For a long time, the players were using zips on their trousers. Anything you could to scuff up one half of the ball so it would swing unnaturally. Mm -hmm. But the fact that the Australians did the exact same thing, but with an implement from off the field, just managed to tip it from, oh, everyone cheats, to, oh, my God, what are they doing? And I think you're right. I think a lot of these things are matched up with the hatred. And I want to get into that very specifically. The Boston Red Sox got caught 
science feeling before and after the Astros? Am I getting the dates right there? No, you're right. That's correct. And so they got caught twice, and yet we're sitting here making a podcast about the Astros and not the Red Sox. What's the difference? So the Red Sox also stole signs during the 2017 season. They were using smartwatches, okay? It was called the smartwatch scandal at the time. It was not anywhere near a bigger deal. It was revealed at the time, right? Like in 20, it was revealed immediately, almost in 2017, that they had been doing this. You know, their guys in the video room had been transmitting pitch sequences to a coach on the bench on his watch. And then that guy would be either telling a batter when he's about to go on the field, this is what it is. And that means that when somebody got to second base, right, they weren't necessarily using like a camera to simultaneously transmit this sign to the batter. It was like if somebody got to second base, so the guy at home plate could see that runner and the runner could see into the catcher with his eyes, then he would kind of tell the batter what was coming. It's all very complicated, especially if you don't like have the geography or geometry of baseball diamonds in your head, as some of your listeners might. So it was an offense. They broke a rule, right? Mm. Definitely. You're not allowed to use technology to steal signs. That rule was on the books at that time. But it was just like a lesser offense, right? Plus, they were the Red Sox, who, unlike the Astros, these kind of like scrappy upstarts that people look side-eyed at, the Red Sox are like one of the premier franchises in the league. So there's less of an appetite to like take them down, some would argue. So that came out in 2017. Then after the Astros scandal, another Red Sox thing happened when the Astros bench coach, like the assistant coach had gone to become the manager of the Red Sox. Then the next year, the Red Sox happened to be again improperly using a video station to steal signs. This was investigated later. I mean, it's all a mess, right? But I think the main takeaway is that if you think about speed limits, this is a pretty good analogy that people have said, right? Mm. The speed limit is 65 miles an hour on an American highway. Every team is going 75, 80. You know, it's kind of accepted that you're going a little bit above the speed limit. The perception was that the Astros had just taken out their Lamborghini and gone 110 on the highway, right? So they're all crimes, But what the Astros did was just much more egregious and deserved punishment, which they've certainly received, at least in some measure. I think one of the other things, I don't know if you know this, but so the match that Australia played uh, when they were caught was against South Africa. Mm -hmm. And South Africa's captain, Faf Duplessis, who's a very, very widely respected cricketer and people love him. He uh, appears topless a lot. Um, was once in a music video, just a popular guy. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) He was captain of that particular game, and he'd been caught tampering with the ball twice before, Mm -hmm. and also his star bowler had been caught. And South Africa had a, what I would say, a systemic ball tampering system where they all knew that they wouldn't get penalised very much, so they were rotating the duties of it so that one would lose 70% of his match fee one game and the next one would lose 70% of his match another game so that it didn't look like they were doing it as a team. But clearly, in space of about three or four years, they got done three times and they were these ones that they were proven. <laughs> that was a system, but they weren't taking sandpaper on. But to just explain how ridiculous it was, the penalty that Faf Plessy got, I think, for his first ball tampering event was the same that he once got for going onto a cricket field with the wrong colored shoelaces. Hmm. Because obviously in cricket, you have to wear whites for the the traditional form. And he had a colorful pair of shoelaces on that did not suit that. So a bit like the Red Sox, you have a more popular person. Everyone likes the South Africans because they're generally quite well-regarded and everything who have been caught multiple times doing the same thing. But I think it's funny you were saying speed analogy, because I was thinking about that just before uh, with one of the questions. 
realistically, what the South Africans did was friendly cheating. It was socially acceptable cheating. And That's what right. the Astros and the Australian team did just took it to a whole nother level, didn't they? And I think it gets to the level where I, I don't know if the politicians got involved with the Astros, although I'm sure they did. In fact, on your podcast, there's a politician who's very angry about the Astros, so <laughs> I know they did. But the Australian Prime Minister came out and spoke out against the Australian cricket team. Like it got to the level where you've got some political lackey going, you can win some points here by making a comment about the Australian cricket team. So that's a big difference from, at that point, you're taking it from what low level talk radio people bringing in to complain about a team and take it to the wider thing. And I think what we're talking about is really, it's a combination of all the different things that we've talked about so far that get it to that level, isn't it? Yeah. And it really is. And one of the things I tried to do as I've reported this story for most of 2020 was get into the heads, you know, and speak to some of them, but get into the heads of the people who are doing this, right? Like, why would you think this is okay? They didn't even need to do it, you know, which is an interesting part of it because they were undoubtedly one of the best teams in baseball. They might have been the best team in baseball without cheating at all. It's almost like Watergate, some people have said, uh, to use an American political reference, but like Richard Nixon was going to win the election anyway. So like, why do you need to cheat? (laughs) So that psychology is interesting. But I think part of it was that nobody had ever taken this thing very seriously. Like nobody in baseball history had ever thought that sign stealing was a huge crime or that you might risk like national villainy right? Or become like the easy target for politicians to villainize. If you stole signs on a baseball field, like nobody ever considered this. And one of the more interesting figures in the scandal is this guy named Carlos Beltran, who is a very respected player. He was one of the oldest players in the league by the time the Astros got him. They brought him in to be kind of this like mentor to all their young, talented guys and also contribute on the field. And he had developed his like sign stealing acumen over the course of his whole career. And it was fine. It was encouraged. Like, yeah, if you can do this, <laughs> you, you want to do it. But I think that even Carlos Beltran, when he led the team, because he was really like one of the ringleaders of this whole thing, convincing the young guys to come along and participate in this scheme. I think maybe he didn't even realize like how far this thing had gone. Because I think when you're in the middle of it, it just seems like you're in a continuum. Like, yeah, everybody cheats in the sport. Everybody steals signs. This doesn't feel that different necessarily from what I've been doing my whole career. It's just kind of like the technology's better. It's easier. Probably there's a lot of paranoia that everybody else is doing this too. So if we're not doing it, we're going to fall behind. And you go down this slippery slope. And this is not to absolve anybody of anything. Just kind of understand how you like fall into this level of villainy, much in the same way that I imagine, even though they were trying to hide it, that some of the Australian cricketers were like, yeah, everybody messes with the ball, right? Like Pakistanis do it, the South Africans do it. Everybody messes with that red cherry and they always have. So is a little disc of sandpaper, like really that big a difference to them? Maybe it didn't seem like it, but obviously somewhere they crossed this like enormous, important line Mm. uh, culturally Maybe they didn't even realize they were crossing. It certainly seems like from the reactions that they might have been a bit surprised that they've become like the villains of the cricket world because of this. No, I think definitely. I think <laughs> I don't think anyone had ever been suspended for more than a game if they'd done it before. And these we had two year-long suspensions. So no, mm-hmm. you're right. I don't think that they saw it. And they are not the first cricket team to take something onto the field either. Mm-hmm. That has certainly happened before. There's a famous case of a New Zealand cricketer doing that back in the 90s. And I would say that if the Australian cricketers were open and honest, they might say that they were inspired by some other teams and hearing rumours. And one of the other things is that 
There's so many different layers. You, you talked about they didn't need to do it. I happened to be talking to an Australian cricketer at the time when we were both watching that game, like remotely uh, watching yeah. that game. And like I was still starting to work out what I was looking at because I had the sound down. And he just said, oh, you don't need to do that, as if to say you can cheat without having to do that. Mm -hmm. But there are all these sorts of different levels. The one thing that we haven't been able to track back specifically in the cricket one so far is that there are baseball pitchers who lost their job because of this, isn't there? I mean, mm -hmm. you talked to you know, an incredible pitcher who was so open and honest, who went on to sue to try and get some money back for, well, not even for his career, was it? I think he was going to get the money for charity in the end. But you're talking about someone who was playing and there are trash cans being banged and he's being knocked out the park and it ruined his career, didn't it? Yeah, this is this guy, Mike Bolsinger, who's kind of a journeyman pitcher, you know, hanging on to his job by his fingernails. And one August night in 2017 goes up against the Astros and they destroy him, right? Just like hit after hit, home run, walk. He gets like one out finally. And then he, you know, walks off the field and he's sent down to the minor leagues, which means in baseball, you're essentially kicked off the team. Never pitches in the major leagues again. Like this was his last night. And it turned out that that night was like the peak of the Astros scheme. Like that was when they banged their trash can the most. So, yeah, I mean, I started my podcast with him because I kind of wanted to show that this was not a victimless crime, right? And you can argue, as many people do, that this guy wasn't that great a pitcher anyway. You know, his career might have mm. been, maybe it would have lasted another week. Maybe they would have hit him around anyway, right, that night. But that's not what happened, and you can't say that, right? Like, maybe he would have figured something out, and maybe his career would have lasted, maybe we would have hit a nice spell, but he didn't get that chance, and his career was ended that night against a team that was very blatantly cheating. And they did this to a lot of pitchers. They did it to mm. over 100 pitchers, right? They banged the trash can against that season. And amazingly, none of them heard it. Well, one did, and I talked to him in the podcast, but none of his even teammates believed what he was telling them that he had heard out there, this guy named Danny Farquhar. So yeah, look, sport is a tough job, right? Mm. You can lose your job in an instant for doing anything. One bad play, you're gone. But you do want to think, if this is going to happen to you, that it happened fair. And impossible to argue, in my opinion, that was the case with a guy like Mike Bolsinger, who was the pitcher who they uh, knocked out. Yeah, I think that's one big difference between the Sandpaper Gate and the Astros is that the players going up against Australia were convinced that Australia were doing something dodgy. We got tips um, routinely from the England team, so the series before, <laughs> saying they are tampering with the ball. And we were like, I remember I had trying to remember if I did two or three tests of that series, but I remember how sore my eyes were by the end because I'd spent so long with binoculars on, just following <laughs> the ball around the field and just like waiting to see this little bit of evidence. But one of the other things that I find really interesting, the Houston Astros are always going to be the 2017 World Series champs. They don't lose that title. The Australian cricket team actually went to number one after that period, using points that they won from that period. So both teams were successful and get to get paid as winners. You know, they'll have that on their record. Okay, there will be asterisks, especially with Houston's case, because it was obviously so clear cut in their particular victory. That is another thing that really is going to grate for a long time, isn't it? I think part of the reason the Australian one won't go away is because more to do with the fact that so few people were punished. But I think with Houston directly, because they have that title and it came in the same year, it's never going to go away. People are so upset that they got success from cheating. Right. Technically, it will never go away. And, you know, the owner of the team isn't going to give back any of the profit from it. And he's not sending back the trophy or the rings. Certainly, it will be tarnished forever. Mm -hmm. 
right? As much as that matters, economically perhaps less than emotionally for a lot of people. But I talked to a former coach of the Astros on this, and he said, we were talking before about how well-liked the Astros players were at the time, right? I mentioned Jose Altuve, the guy who stands five foot five, mm. who's this inspirational, incredibly talented player. A lot of them were that way. Now, for the rest of their careers, the rest of their lives, this is going to be with them. They're still playing, most of them. The manager of the team, A.J. Hinch, is now a manager of another team. The coach of the team who was involved, Alex Cora, is now the manager of the Red Sox. Like, they'll move on, but this will be with them forever, as I suspect it will be for the Australian cricketers as well. And there is one massive difference, I think, between the two scandals. Obviously, no one owns the Australian cricket team, unless mm -hmm. you count the Australian cricket public. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a general rule, no one owns the Australian cricket team. But the CEO essentially lost his job because of this. The general manager, the coach both went. Obviously, we had the captain suspended, the vice captain suspended, and the player involved in Cameron Bancroft. But eventually, the chairman of Cricket Australia left. Like, there was a real leadership flux because... The team was seen as almost moralless at that point. And they had been mm -hmm. for a very long time. It's just that it had spilled out in this particular way. That is not the case in Houston at all. Houston does have an owner. You've talked about it before. Jim Crane, who's a shipping magnate. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Among other, among other businesses. Yeah, well, that, a that very is... rich person who owns a lot of things. <laughs> and Jim Crane, obviously the general manager and the manager lost their positions and were suspended. Jim Crane still owns that team. And essentially, the buck has to stop with him in the same way that it sort of did with Cricket Australia. But because there was almost like a communal ownership of the Australian cricket team and there was no specific owner, it was very easy to get rid of a CEO and the chairman mm -hmm. and move forward from the moral decay, as it was reported at the time. <laughs> Jim Crane's still there and he's not going anywhere. The team's probably worth more now than it was in 2017. Certainly worth more than it was in 2017. <laughs> in fact, Jim Crane bought the team for about $600 million U.S. in uh, 2011. And by many estimates, it's now worth more than $2 billion now, right? So it's a pretty good profit on your investment, I think. Yeah. I'm not a financial expert. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, though. Like A lot of people kind of conflate over here the sport of baseball with Major League Baseball, right? Like they're one and the same. But in some ways, this scandal is a reminder that Major League Baseball is a business. And it's a business designed to profit and controlled by essentially 30 people, right? Like the 30 people who own the controlling interests in the teams. And the commissioner of the league, Rob Manfred, is not like an impartial governor. He's directly hired by and answers to the owners of the teams, Right. So this is not some like King Solomon figure trying to do what's best for the sport. His goal was to do what's best for his business and the owner's business. And they concluded that this meant that you would find some would call them fall guys, but certainly you would find specific targets to punish mm. for this. In this case, it was Jeff Luno and the manager of the team, A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora, who is A.J. Hinch's right hand man in particular. And you would severely punish them. And then when that was done, you would kind of reemerge and say, oh, look, we've solved it. This cultural issue that led to this is no more. We've taken care of it. Everybody move on now, right? And it sounds to me on some level, Jared, that that's what Australia did with the cricketing scandal. Like, I understand the setup is different, but from what I read, you know, the three guys who were most heavily implicated were suspended, you know, took a lot of the blame, but 
this is something like obviously the rest of the team was involved in this, right? Like you would think like the bowlers had to know that the ball was being altered. They had to be on board with this, but nobody did anything to them. So in some ways, this motivation yeah. to tie it up and move on is present in your scandal, as we'll call it as well. Yeah, there's no way to tamper with the cricket ball without all 11 people being involved because mm -hmm. someone can ruin the tampering. Right. <laughs> someone with sweaty hands picks up the ball the wrong way and the ball doesn't reverse. And so you're right. I think the only difference really is that top end where those people yeah. lost their jobs through public pressure because essentially three people were suspended in Houston and three mm -hmm. people were suspended in Cricket Australia and they're the only people who realistically were directly involved whereas in both cases, I mean, how many people must have known in both cases is actually mind-blowing. I want to talk about you just to finish up the podcast here. Sure. You're a feature writer like me, so I assume you get attached to these stories. In this particular case, you're almost part of the story. Well, you have been part of the story. Yeah. You predict that the team's going to win. That's a huge thing for you. Sports Illustrated, people are talking about that all over the country. This wacky Sports Illustrated cover written by this guy, right? Then it comes true. So you become part of the story when they win. You then write this brilliant book, which is uh, hopefully for you, sold lots of copies. I've certainly got a copy. and then. They get caught cheating and you're brought back in again. What is your current relationship to the Houston Astros? Because you're not a Houston Astros fan, are you? No, I'm not a Houston Astros fan. I'm a guy who went down in 2014 to write a story that was not even supposed to be a cover story about a terrible team and what they were trying to do to get better. And, you know, this cover happened, which kind of elevated the story. I contributed to the cover by, you know, picking the year and everything, but it wasn't my decision to make it the cover, obviously. And it was just one of those stories I was immediately fascinated by because I thought they were up to something new and exciting. And I still do believe that they were up to something new and exciting that changed the sport that led to success that was, I would argue, responsible for 98, 99% of what they accomplished had nothing to do with trash can banging. It was based on the way that they built the team. And there's a lot of statistical analyses that backs that up. But yeah, so I kept writing about this story. I kind of kept tabs with the people involved. Then it came true. And I wrote a book about how they did it. And I guess what I would say about the book, which I'm still very proud of, it's not as if anything in the book has been proven wrong. In fact, mm. like, obviously, I missed something they were doing in 2017 that they were keeping secret from everybody. But the themes of the book and the strategies they were pursuing, like those are still valid and those still stand up and those should still be used, frankly, by any team or organization that's looking to like compete in this modern era in which analytics is not just like an advantage. It's like table stakes. Like if you don't have an analytics program, you can't even compete in sports anymore. What I kind of think I could have done better or should have done better was interrogate the potential implications of this sort of worldview that the Astros were bringing to Major League Baseball. Not that I could have ever found out that they were cheating in 2017, right? Like, I, I could not have. Not that I could have predicted that. I couldn't predict everything. But the idea that, look, there are some cultural implications here. Change is not only all good. Mm. Those are the sorts of things that I could have been harder on them in the book. So when it came time for me, or when I felt compelled, like almost a responsibility to go back to the story after the scandal broke and like get to the bottom of it and square all of that with everything I'd done before, that was something I was certainly much more attuned to. And I think the results are in the edge. I really put everything I had into that podcast and wrapping that story up. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I must have read Astro Ball after I had first started working for cricket teams. Mm -hmm. And 
Had I read it before then, I think I would have gone in completely doe-eyed. I've done similar things to you before. I'd spent like a couple of days behind the scenes with cricket teams and things like mm. that before. But because I'd just been a general manager and I think I'm maybe within a week of being a general manager for a cricket team, there was a moral line to cross where an agent basically said to me, oh, don't worry, everyone does this. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I must have read your book just after that. And my looking at it was, I wonder, I suppose your podcast is called The Edge. In my mind, reading it the whole time, I was like, I wonder where they're pushing things and what they mm. are doing that will come out. I had no idea that it would be something as funny or historic <laughs> as what it actually is. But yeah, people should definitely go listen to your podcast. They should still buy the book. I still think the book is great. It's a great way of understanding how modern sports can push themselves in different directions. And then once you finish the book, you listen to The Edge and the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Jared. Uh, really fun to talk to you. And it's, it's actually interesting to look back at the book now because it forms a continuum. You know, it's like a lot of what I wrote in the book certainly takes on a different meaning now based on what we know than it did at the time. But I appreciate you having me on and uh, fun to talk to you. These sorts of scandals are not just limited to baseball. They're not just limited to cricket. They're everywhere in our society. It's always interesting to dig into exactly why they happened. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from Cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. And luckily for you, season three has just started. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app.